All right, everybody, let's bring it back to the stage. I hope a lot of you realized how gullible you probably are for these scams. There's a lot of things out there that can fool us. And that kind of goes along with the theme that we're going to be talking about today. So the title of my sermon is The Leaven of Christ. And if you don't know what leaven means, don't worry. I'm going to be going over that really shortly. Um, but we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. And we've been going through Matthew as a church, actually. We're looking to go from front to back. And a lot of us have been going on that journey together for a really long time now. So I might be drawing some information from previous sermons. Um, so definitely refresh your memory and what's been going on in this book. Uh, I'm going to start in verses 1 through 4. If you have your Bibles on your phone or a physical copy, please follow along with me. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. And the word of God reads this. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you on another Sunday, but we know it's not just another Sunday. We don't come here just out of routine or obligation. We didn't come here to listen to a speaker speak. Uh, we came here to hear from you this morning. We want, to, we want to know what you want to say to us today. I just pray a blessing over this service that our hearts would be opened to your voice that we learn your ways, we learn to pursue righteousness above all other things, and that these sometimes difficult, uh, these difficult passages um, would be just become easy and understood by all those in attendance today. We anoint this time as sacred, as holy, because you're with us. You're sitting here with us, and you're teaching us. Thank you for these brothers and sisters, and thank you for this church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so before we move on to the second part of the passage, I want to point out a few things in these four verses because they're crucial to what comes next. The first thing I want to point out is notice that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the ones who came to Jesus. He never has to go out and find them or seek out their camps. And the reason for that is because they're essentially stalking Jesus because they're following him for a different reason. The disciples and the crowds that have been following Jesus throughout his ministry, they're there because, if anything, they're intrigued. They're curious. This actually could be the Messiah. That's the mindset that they have. But the Pharisees have a completely different agenda. And this is not the first time that they've argued and quarreled with one another. The Pharisees, at this point, are looking to put an end to this, to plot against Jesus and to kill him. 
So they're falling for very, very different reasons, but they're always present, always ready to test him and to call out anything, any mistakes that they might catch. And what's also interesting is that the Sadducees are now part of the scene too. Historically, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are sworn enemies. They're both of the Jewish culture and they're both of the Jewish council, but these two are very different in their theology. So because of that, they butt heads and they're, you know, they're not on good terms. But that's the extent that Jesus has threatened their own ministry, which has to do with the synagogues and the temples they actually put aside their differences to team up against the common enemy on their perspective, which is Christ himself. So they're joining forces, and this is how offensive they find Jesus' ministry. What's going on here is they test Jesus. They test God himself, which, as we know, is a grave, grave sin, and they unknowingly do this. They ask him for a sign from heaven. And what that means is they're looking for like an Old Testament style sign, something that is just so miraculous that only God alone could do it. And an example of that is Joshua, for example, requests God to stop the sun and stop the moon, something of that caliber. They want to see this happen, and then maybe you're the Messiah. I want you to think about Matthew's, this is the book of Matthew, so thus far, thus far. What has happened? We've seen so many miracles. We've seen the lame walking. We've seen the blind seeing, the deaf hearing. He just fed 4,000 people with a handful of bread. And he's even raised the dead. The Pharisees were there the whole time looking at these miracles too, just like everybody else. And yet... They have the nerve to continue testing Jesus for more evidence to convince them. And how does Jesus respond to this? He basically says, you're better at predicting the weather than you are at theology. And the reason why that's a pointed statement is because the Pharisees, their whole lives were committed to theology, and that's it. That was the only thing that they did their entire lives, was study the Torah for the purpose of knowing Yahweh, God. And even by today's means, their methods of discerning weather was not that great. It's as simple as saying, oh, look, it's cloudy today, so it's probably going to rain. Or it's clear today, so it's not going to rain. Like You and I could do that very, very easily. And their ability to predict that is even better than their understanding of their own scripture. So when I was in college, back in the 90s, no, I'm just kidding, it was like, <laughs> um, I was a bio major, so I had to take chemistry. Chemistry was not my cup of tea. I was not good at it. And chemistry, there's always a lecture and there's always a lab. So the lab part has a TA running around and our teacher's assistants. They're usually PhD students who are there to help out the students with their experiments. And I remember that I had a li really little Chinese girl as RTA, and like her sleeves would be like hanging off because she's so small. And she's just like running around helping people. A lot of them were international students. They gave up everything to come to California, come to a college, and pursue this PhD. Their family, 
their home, their home country, just like the Pharisees did when they had to learn the scriptures. So, you know, I was struggling. I was, like, you know, barely getting through, so I needed help a lot. So the first time I asked her for help, um, you know, she came over, and I was like, okay, like, so what will happen if I put this in? Is this what I'm supposed to do, like this acid into this whatever base? Is that going to work? And then she would just kind of pause for a second, and then she'll say, oh, uh, I don't know. And like, you're the TA, right? You're like not a student. And I'm like, yeah, she's the TA. And I'm like, you don't, you don't know like whether that's what I'm supposed to do. This is like supposed to be pretty basic stuff. And she's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Sorry. And I'm like, okay, that's a little weird. Sometimes she'll just do a cop out and actually say, I'll go look at my notebook, and she'll just never come back. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I took chemistry twice basically um, because it wasn't helpful. But the point is. This is exactly how Jesus saw the Pharisees. This is what the Pharisees were doing. They had such a strong commitment for the goal of understanding who God was, but yet they completely missed the point. At the end of the day, they have no practical knowledge of the subject, and Jesus is calling them out for that. I covered this in the last sermon that I uh, preached up here, but... The interesting thing about the Pharisee mindset is that they know the truth, but yet they choose to reject it. They've seen the evidence. It matches with their scriptures that this is the Messiah. But because they're so blinded by their self-righteousness in their own ministry, in their own temples, in their own ambitions, they choose to reject Christ. And it shows how hardened their hearts are to Jesus and his message of the gospel. Another pointed statement happens in verse 4. He says, they're an evil and adulterous generation. He's talking specifically about the Pharisees. And some people are like, oh, no, I think it's talking about our generation too. But in this context, it's about the Pharisees. It's pointed directly at them. So you might ask, how are they evil and adulterous? That seems kind of extreme. Where's the adultery in it? And um, what I'm going to do is just show you a series of pictures that are going to parallel and explain exactly what they're doing to the kingdom of God with their false teaching. So like the average um, Asian, American, middle-aged man, uh, I like to play video games. So I've been in the market for a new console, you know. But the hardest part is determining whether you want a PlayStation or a Nintendo Switch. And those are both very viable options. They both have really great games. And the awesome thing is that I actually found a way to cover both bases. And that's with this right here. This is a Nintendo PolyStation. So you actually get both for the price of one. And I don't recommend parents buying this for their children because if you look in the upper left-hand corner, there's actually, it comes with a handgun, which is a little weird. Um, but that's there. Okay, quick question. We've had a lot of rainy days this week, and I like to curl up with a book, right? You're wrong. There's eight. Because there's this one. <laughs> Exclusive to China called Harry Potter and Leopard Walk Up to Dragon. <laughs> and as you, you have the extremely good illustration of Harry riding the centaur, 
to fight the Maleficent dragon. So it's a Disney crossover, I guess. So there's eight, it's not seven. This next picture will require some additional participation, but I'm gonna show you a picture of two iPhones. One of them is real and one of them is fake. And I'm gonna let you kind of gander at that for a second. Okay, with a show of hands, how many people think the one on the left is the genuine iPhone? All right, all right, we got some people. How many people think the one on the right is the real one? More, it looks like more people think the one on the right. Well, um, the one on the left is the real one. So all that, those that got it wrong are Pharisees, officially. So you can leave now, and I'm just kidding. Here's the point, this is not just some activity to wake you up or make you feel energetic. Oh, by the way, 70% of counterfeits come out of China, so not too proud of that myself. But you're probably wondering, <laughs> who in the world would fall for these fake products? Oh, Holly in children's ministry, she thought the gaming console was real, so she thought I was onto something. But who would fall for these things? And why are they still around? Because it's so obviously fake. Um, but they're still around because people are still fooled a lot of people. It's still profitable to take advantage of people's blindness. In fact, it's become a business, scamming people. What these products are doing are they're taking a very, very famous brand name, you know, Harry Potter, PlayStation. They're altering it so that they get the reputation of the company, but they don't deliver the genuine final product because you know it's not gonna work. It's not gonna be as good as a real thing, yet people buy into it. And this is exactly what the Pharisees are doing with God, which is infinitely more serious. They're preaching a counterfeit gospel. And this counterfeit gospel, will, isn't, because it's not genuine, it will save no one. Not a single person that follows the way of the Pharisee will be saved because the gospel that they preach is not genuine. Their master is, their master is not God. Their master is self-righteousness and greed and their own bellies, far, far from God. You don't have to turn there, but in Mark chapter eight, there's a parallel to this story. And there's some details that he adds in his gospel that are not present here. Jesus actually sighs deeply in his spirit in Mark's account. And what do we get from that? It shows that Jesus is kind of done. He's put up with the Pharisees a long, long time. He sees that their hearts are hardened. At this point, he's just almost grieving. You know, God doesn't like to see anybody not say, but these Pharisees, they're permanently blinded to the goodness of Christ, and he feels that, and he's done rebuking them. He's given them their chance to accept the gospel. He's given them their chance to receive salvation, and yet they still reject it. So ultimately, Jesus refuses to give a sign. He doesn't do any heavenly sign, and he simply says that uh, the sign that will be given is the sign of Jonah. 
And for those of you that remember, this is from Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. The sign of Jonah is essentially saying, when I die and get resurrected, that's when you'll know for sure that I am the Messiah, and it will happen. So ultimately, Jesus leaves them. He turns their backs on them, now orienting his ministry more towards the disciples and less towards the Jews. And the Pharisees are left with their own wickedness and their self-deception. All right, we're going to move on to the second part of the passage now, which brings in the disciples, who are very prominent uh, people that we can do character studies on. Um, it reads this, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000, which just happened, by the way, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees in Sadducees. So what is this leaven that he's talking about? Well, first of all, leaven on its own talks about yeast. It's a fungus that you add to dough. So if you're a baker, um, you add it a little bit to your large amount of dough, and then eventually it expands very, very quickly. Usually overnight, about 60 pounds of dough will be fully leavened in that short amount of time. And the Bible uses it as typically a way to indicate something that is bad, something negative that starts off small and spreads very, very quickly and becomes very pervasive, almost like a cancer. Starts microscopically, and then eventually you see the problem that you have from it. If you think about it, the reason why we're here and the whole reason why we need to reconcile with God is because of a little leaven. If you recall in Genesis 3, which is when mankind falls, uh, Satan took the form of a snake and convinced Eve to eat of the fruit, the forbidden fruit. All it took was about three sentences saying, are you sure God said that you shouldn't eat of that fruit? Are you sure you don't want that kind of power? He's just scared that you'll be the same as him. That's all it took to convince her to take of the fruit, and then man, man and woman fell because of that, and here we are. So that's how something very small and very manipulative can turn into something that's a very, very big problem. But the leaven of the Pharisees is this. It's their cynicism. It's their unbelief. It's the attitude that they have towards Christ where they just do not see who he is. They only see a false prophet. That is what Jesus is warning his disciples about. Don't let that make a home in your hearts, he's saying. Instead, you know, indulge in me. I am the bread of life. I am the one who actually fills you who genuinely gives you life. You don't need any other bread apart from me. That's what he's trying to say. I know a lot of us have been Christian for a long time, um, maybe almost our whole lives. If you think about it, Jesus only had time with the disciples for about three years. 
And three years, we know, is not that long to learn who Jesus is, what it looks like to live a life that is Christ-centered. They have so little time. And Jesus took this small amount of time to warn them about false teaching. The disciples are essentially new believers at this point. They're very young. They're very loose on their theology, but they have Christ with them. But Jesus knew that they were still very, very vulnerable to the teaching of the Pharisees. That the Pharisaical mindset, even though in our context it seems very misguided, that they could actually still buy into that. Because it looks good. It seems to check out. It seems legit. Let's take a look at how the disciples respond to that teaching. They think he's talking about bread, like physical bread, which is, you know, leaven is used for. But how I like to see it is, it looks like they're thinking about lunch, like we're hungry, like when's lunch? And I know that might be some of us right now too. So they miss the teaching entirely, and it's dumb because Jesus just fed 4,000 people with very little bread, and they already forgot that he could do that. Jesus could conjure up like a sushi buffet if he wanted to in the boat to feed them all and you know, have food for days and days, but they forgot about that. And don't we sometimes quickly forget about the power of God and how he's blessed us in the past because we're so caught up in the moment? You know, circumstances aren't going well. Financially, things are difficult, or even something as simple as being hungry can allow this blindness to return temporarily. So they kind of miss the point. They think he's talking about what we're going to eat later, but it's actually, no, beware the teaching of the Pharisee. I know it can be difficult to draw ourselves into today's context from the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, we don't see a lot of them walking around in SoCal trying to convert us into Judaism or trying to prove you know, that the Messiah is not actually the Messiah. So do we still have like this leaven today? Is there still this pervasive negative influence that is a threat? Is Jesus giving us advice as well as just his disciples? And the answer is obviously yes. We can get a lot from this too, even though it's easy to detach from the ideas of Pharisees and Phariseeism. The reality is that we have a lot of people in this day and age, in our modern times, that still prey on blindness or on misguidedness. They're everywhere. And I know you might be thinking, okay, he's talking about you know, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and so-called false churches. And I can spend a lot of time on those if I wanted to, but something that I think is even closer to home than those other churches is actually the idea of self-preservation. In other words, the leaven is yourself. Falling in love with yourself is actually a huge obstacle to falling in love with Jesus. And a lot of people say that it's, you know, it's a requirement. Like You have to love yourself first in order to love Jesus. But I am in opposition to that mindset. Back in the day, you would see Satan use demons to possess people. And this is his way of pulling them away from God. 
And I myself have not seen any of that, even though I believe it's still around. But thinking about our own context and our own culture, I think Satan has switched to using demons right now for a lot of us and instead just hands us something very simple. Just hands us a mirror so that you can see yourself. And I know you don't need me to tell you how much damage seeing your own reflection can do. The first thing that we think of when we see ourselves in the mirror is, wow, look at all these flaws. Look how imperfect I am. Or look at how I don't compare with anybody else in my friend group or her or him. Look how unattractive I am or incompetent. I promise you that when we come before God, he's not going to separate us based on attractiveness. He's not going to say, oh, oh, by the way, Mark over there, who's you know, a little bit more handsome than, than most. There's, truth, there's some truth to that, yeah. Um, he's going to get it easier because he's more attractive. That is, that's not going to happen. Don't be fooled by that. When he separates the sheep from the goats, he's looking at the beauty in here. Are you regenerated? Are you a redeemed person because you had a heart transformation? A lot of times we cannot just see that based on the superficial things. But that is what God is concerned about. But yet we can deceive ourselves into thinking that that's a priority, that I'm more in love with myself. And just like the Pharisee, I use all these things to serve Lord, who is actually myself and not Lord our Father. How many people have witnessed a baptism or been baptized? Okay, awesome. I rejoice in how many hands went up. If you think about what a baptism is, like what does it mean to get baptized? Have you ever thought that it's actually us witnessing somebody being put to death? It's supposed to symbolize that when you get dunked in the water or however you got baptized, that you're dead to your old self. All the things that you used to like, all the things that you used to be into, those things are gone for the sake of being a new creature when you emerge from the water, which is defined by Christ and Christ alone. For me personally, there is a big gap between when I first heard the gospel and when I thought I was saved and when I got baptized. And the reason why is because I looked around me on my college campus and there were Christians and non-Christians doing the exact same thing. And that confused me as somebody who was a new believer. There were still Christians going to parties and getting drunk or engaging in things relationally that they shouldn't have. There were also non-Christians doing that. So I was just very, very confused and very lost. But when I finally started reading this book and realizing what it means to be a disciple, to die to yourself, and that's a requirement for the Christian, I realized that because I'm changed, I don't want any of the old mark. Baptism is about the old mark has been drowned. I'm gone. I've been excised out of my being, and now Christ is the new creature. I'm not the same anymore. I don't live for myself anymore. I don't pursue a career because of what it can do for me. It ends up being about what you can do for Christ once you emerge from the water. Church, 
We're all here at Renew, I know, so it might sound a little strange, but I think this is something that we can use to assess ourselves as well. Churches are essentially these vessels that help you get to the finish line. The finish line being, wow, it's time to go home. It's time to go to heaven. I have used all my resources in my whole life for Christ. Churches help you with that. They're supposed to push you and encourage you and cheer you on during that journey. They kind of give us a ride to that destination. When I first moved to New York for graduate school, I was pursuing physical therapy at the time. I was a West Coast kid in an East Coast city. I was very out of place. I didn't know what to do, but I knew I needed a ride to Long Island, which is where my school was. I had to go to my apartment. This is day one of me on the East Coast. So I'm looking there all innocent in like my shorts and like my rainbows. It's like negative seven degrees. <laughs> and then this creepy guy kind of comes up and he says, hey kid, you need a ride? And you know, I'm pretty gullible. So I'm yeah, actually I do. Like, how did you know? <laughs> like, does it, is that what it looks like or? And you know, I'm basically doing what parents tell their five-year-olds not to do, except I'm 23. And like, I should not be doing this. But I'm like, yeah, actually, uh, I do. So I'll go with you. He leads me like off the airport premises. And I see his car. It's not yellow or anything close to it. It's like this really old Ford Taurus. And for some reason, I get in. And then once I close it, I know, yeah. <laughs> I, I probably deserve what's coming. But uh, I'm thinking about ways I can escape in case something happens and roll on the freeway or whatever. But by some miracle, I get to the destination, my apartment. And the nightmare wasn't over because the tab was $250 for like an hour ride. And this was before Uber, you know, like before that was a mainstream thing. So in fear of not knowing what would happen if I didn't pay him, I just kind of had to pay up. Um, but the reason why I share this story is because I had a need. I had a very obvious need for something. And I had somebody who could give me a ride. But I wasn't discerning. I wasn't recognizing whether or not he was the right person to give me that ride. And it ended up being not the right person. You know, I got ripped off. Wasn't that comfortable. You know, there's so many other options. My question is, does the church that you're going to, and I know we're all here, but I still want you to think about this. Does the church that you're a part of help you get to the finish line? Are they the right driver for your faith? Or are they concerned about other things? Money, selfish desires, so that you can help them, not the other way around? It's too often that I see churches drop little things to the gospel to make it more palatable as if it needs to be, so that it goes down easier. But every time you add a drop, it adds more and more untruthfulness. You get farther and farther away from what the gospel genuinely is until you end up being like a Pharisee, and you only teach lies. And the reason why I show this photo, I bet you're wondering, is we know that things can be nicely packed on the outside. Most of you were fooled by the two iPhones. You picked the wrong one. But look, when you open it up, it's actually pretty easy to tell which one's fake. The insides are all unofficial looking and disheveled on the fake one, which is the bottom one. 
and you know it's not the real thing, even though the outside looks genuine. This is the kind of thing that Jesus is warning us against. So even for your own church now, look inside. That will tell you whether this is a genuine church. What are the people like? Are they marked by worship? Are they marked by love? Do they care about one another? Do they actually run and give somebody a hug or pray for them when they're in tears? And most importantly, are they concerned about Christ? Is the most attractive thing about our church Christ? Because that alone is fully sufficient, I guarantee you, to bring people in. It doesn't have to be anything on the outside or anything else that mankind offers, just Christ. Some of you might have noticed that I left the last verse out, and we're going to go through that right now. And there's a reason for that. Verse 12 is this pivotal moment for the disciples. And it reads this, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This verse tells us that Christians, believers, are only temporarily blind. Eventually, the disciples understood what Jesus is trying to say, and that's something that the Pharisees did not have. So at the end of the day, no matter what's out there, no matter what's being thrown at you, there's only one truth. There's always just going to be one. And that is the leaven of Christ, the truth of the gospel. That's the only one that can save a person. There's a lot of cheap imitations, a lot of things that you will be entirely convinced are genuine. But if it's not Christ, if it's not about dying to yourself, picking up your cross, and following everything that he stands for, you will not experience salvation. And I know in this culture, in this day and age, it's difficult to stay the course. But my encouragement to everybody here today is keep enduring. Fight through it. Fight through the pain. Fight through the difficulty because the goal, once you cross the finish line, is entirely worth it. I hope that someday you'll realize that dying to yourself in, in the baptismal waters was a small, small price to pay for getting to spend eternity with Jesus. Let's be a church that uses fellowship, community, prayer, and, and study of the word to exalt Jesus and only Jesus. Never for yourself. Even before you serve the next person, serve Christ. The contrast here is huge. I hope you see the difference between a Pharisee and the believer. Their blindness is eternal. They have closed themselves off. But for the believer, even though we were born in the same way, we have been given eyes to see the truth, to see the things of the Lord, to see how sin is actually not enjoyable, that it's actually something that is offensive to God, and we want 
that repentance. That's something only the, the believer can see. And rejoice in that if you are a believer. Rejoice that you have been gifted that new set of eyes, that new heart to see things of the Lord because that is truly what our soul longs for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we're humbled by, by your word. Your truth, your gospel is the only thing that can bring us to our knees and want to worship you because that's the only truth. That's the only thing that can do that for us. Everything else you're telling us, don't fall for it. I know it looks good, but do not fall for it. Keep pushing through. Lord, we thank you that you're on our side, that you've gifted us with the Holy Spirit to help us stay on track. And Lord, thank you for being a merciful God for the moments that we get lost or we lose our way. Will you just pull us back to where we need to be, which is in your embrace and in yours alone. Lord, thank you for being a good shepherd. Thank you for leading us who were lost sheep before to the green pastures. And let me remind us that we're not here at the green pastures just to enjoy the pasture. We're there to enjoy your company because you'll be there. And your leadership is perfect and righteous. God, may we be a church that is marked by worship, love, and Christ-centeredness. In Jesus' name, amen.